This is W-O-W-D-L-P Tacoma Park. Radio show, and I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis. Good morning, everyone. Sheila and I have a great show in store for you, our listeners. We're going to talk about artists and their public persona. You know how this goes at the Artist Experience Radio Show. These philosophical shows that we present to our listeners at WOWD Tacoma Radio, they sound off alarms, you know, ding, ding, you know. The phone starts ringing off the hook, and people start writing us. Well, people get engaged when they, when they talk about artists and their art and the dirt they drag along with them in their lives. So I've titled this show, Some Artists Come With a Lot of Dirt. And I titled the show, Something That Can't Be Said on Community Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Our beloved Phillips Collection here in D.C. is having a show of paintings from Pablo Picasso's Blue Period. We were offered a tour of the show before it opens to the public, and it's exciting because they are focusing on two particular paintings and using some fancy x-rays to see the changes in composition. Also, we're going to get into the Picasso's methods and the thought processes when he was barely out of his teens. Picasso lived until he was 92, and there was never a time when he wasn't making art, ferociously. So today, Tom and I wanted to give you all an idea of who Picasso was and is. And then, two weeks from now, we'll be able to get a private look at the show and let you know what we've learned about those particular paintings 
and an in-depth look at why Picasso is, well, Picasso. Yes, well, we're doing this show, as Sheila just mentioned, in conjunction with this new exciting show uh, at the Phillips, which is titled Picasso, Painting the Blue Period which begins February 26th and is ending June 12th. This is the first Pablo Picasso exhibition in D.C. in over 25 years. The conception of this prelude program before our show, specifically about this exhibition, is this. Whenever I think of Picasso, I immediately conjure conjure up an image of my co-host, Sheila Blake, (laughs) making a face, altering her visage to express disappointment, disgust, and other descriptive terms I cannot say on community radio. Sheila, what about this relationship between you and Picasso? We'll be talking about the multitude of relationships Picasso had with other women, but how about you? Were you ever on the first name basis with Picasso? You know, share your thoughts on Picasso introducing the show. How do we separate the artist, or how do you separate the artist Picasso? And then who who is really the one that made that art we're going to be talking about in two weeks? Well, Tom, your first question is the best question. Because there are many artists whose work is completely contrary to their personalities, like Degas who abused his models, an anti-Semite, a mean old man. If he saw a fellow artist on the street, he would look the other way and cross the street. And he had no friends. And still, he painted those beautiful gauzy dancers. His paintings and drawings are filled with innovation and light. But Picasso is another story, at least for me. In high school, my friend Florence had two Picasso prints, The Lovers, and one of those Harlequin paintings on her parents' living room walls. Her parents had come from Germany and France at the beginning of World War II, and their apartment kind of smelled. But that didn't stop us from hanging out in their living room. I didn't know Picasso from chicken schmaltz, but I just never liked those paintings. The orange and green, the stylized faces, the fat, homely woman, those weird, elongated circus people. Why were they on their wall? Florence had... Parents had some other things. They had a small Signac watercolor and a music book that Bonnard had illustrated for his brother-in-law, Charles Terras. And that was a long time ago, but I can still feel that same bad feeling about those Picassos. So then some years ago, I read the book by Ariana Huffington, Picasso, Creator and Destroyer. I've been listening to it again while I paint right now, and the title explains everything. Due to having Trump as president, we've been introduced to the idea, the diagnosis of narcissism. The diagnosis of him as a malignant narcissist is inescapable, and it explains so much. Well, that term narcissism is how I see Picasso, except while Trump is accumulating real estate and gold bathrooms, Picasso was accumulating women and making art. He said at some point that he felt he could never really love a woman, but his true attachments, more like love than possession, with, with the men he admired. They too often ended in breakups, but that's certainly the way it can be when you're young and you're poor and you're ambitious. But those breakups weren't cruel. Picasso needed women to control. He was jealous and give or take a few affairs, the women would stay faithful to him. His first real relationship was with Fernand Olivier, 
who he met at a cafe, and she stayed with him for seven years. So it wasn't the breakups, it was the cowardice and cruelty with which he did them, just turning away from with someone else, having eaten them alive and being done. They were just empty shells for him. So I'll start in the beginning. We're all familiar with child prodigies in music and mathematics, but there are almost no visual art prodigies except there was Pablo. Pablo Picasso was the first child born to his parents. His father was an art teacher and he taught drawings. So his son, Pablo, he wasn't in any hurry to learn to talk because he could draw anything he wanted. He would yell for a pencil. And then he would draw what he wanted, and that was easier than speaking. So he just naturally drew, and he never stopped. He wasn't interested in learning to read, although he certainly did. His father was entranced with him. When Pablo was nine or ten, his father would take him to the bullfights and give him paper and pen, and he'd draw the movement in a kind of shorthand that captures the essence of the bullfight. His father was so blown away by his son's precocity that when he was 14, he gives him his palette and brushes and basically passes the mantle to his son. And if you look at his portraits, they are amazing. He used his art school training, the anatomy, the light and shadow, the composition. But that was the setup for those sensitive portraits and the landscapes that he did when he was 14. He could really draw like an angel if he wanted to. Well, thank you, Sheila, for that, because now you brought up these amazing drawings of hand-cast hands that he did when he was like 12 or 13. And I I used to show them to my class. I don't do that anymore. I think it kind of... uh, it kind of stifles the students when they see somebody draw so beautifully at age 12 or 13. And and uh, they're just amazing, the sensitivity of his tonal values across these uh, white sculptures. Well, for many years, upon looking at art, I, de- I decided to separate the person that you heard about in a gossipy way, like the visual artist, and, uh, and, and, and I would definitely separate them from the art that they made. But that sentiment of mine began to change after an experience I had at the American Visionary Art Museum in Baltimore. The the, uh, museum was new, it was a rage back then, and I went. I remembered I was alone in there, and uh, I had a real keen interest in outsider and visionary art. But I remember the labels next to the art had small descriptions descriptive information about the, the artists' lives. And I was looking at their art, and then I would find that a, a little ditties about their lives, such as the artist was incarcerated for many years, he made art in prison, or the artist was bipolar and a drug addict, and then he was homeless for a certain amount of time. Well, there were, there were particular facts about the artist that disturbed me, and I remember stepping back from, from the labels and saying, well, wait a minute. Why can't the art stand up on its own? And do we really need to know about these details of the artist? Well, will this change the way I perceive the art, these labels, or when I'm looking at it, will I be critical in a different way? Do I need to critique the person as well as the art? These questions were raised when I was looking at these pictures at the uh, Visionary Art Museum. I left this museum with a bad taste in my mouth of how this can prejudice the way you see art. 
Sheila, if you had similar experience in view, viewing art and knowing the details about an artist's life and how they may prejudice your view of the art? Well, it, it, it depends. It depends whether it's what their art is about. Sometimes the artists transcend themselves and become m- much more wonderful people than they actually, than is this sort of character. But with Picasso, it was the bad feeling I had way before I knew anything else about him. It was bad. It was the that title of the biography, Picasso, Creator and Destroyer, that explained it to me. Peter and I just watched a documentary, The Mystery of Picasso, that was made in 1956. You can stream it on several platforms, which I recommend that you all do. Just look it up. There is an earlier and shorter Belgian film by Hazards from 1949 in which Picasso is painting on glass and it's filmed from behind the glass so it precedes the 1956 film which was made the same year that Jackson Pollock died. I'm just trying to give you a context for these two giant innovators. So sometimes time is absolutely incomprehensible and Picasso's friend Henri-Georges Clouseau and Claude Renoir, who was the grandson of the great painter, was the cameraman. So they set up an easel where transparent paper mounted in a frame was being photographed from the back. Picasso, at 75, he was bare-chested. Was that really necessary? And he had only on short pants with this barrel chest and his little spindly legs. And sometimes... He'd begin with just a wiggly line, which later became a face, and the swish becoming the arm of a man, changing to a scene. You never knew what would happen next. The film was fast, but it was impossible to keep up with his moves, which could be anywhere on the drawing until it was unrecognizable from what it began as. And then suddenly all these dots and dashes and triangles became a beach scene with sailboats in the distance. And those original figures might be redrawn 25 times, and you couldn't figure out why he just didn't keep those original contours, which might have been much more wonderful than what he ended up with. The end was simply when the drawing didn't suggest anything anything else for him to do. So on the way to the final drawing, there were maybe 15 or 20 wonderful finished drawings But if they gave him something to do next, he wouldn't have any regard for saving them. That kind of freedom to destroy something wonderful, that's amazing. I will never, never approach that kind of freedom. So meanwhile, in the U.S., the photographer Hans Namuth had seen that first documentary, the one where Picasso painted on glass. He hadn't been particularly interested in the work of Jackson Pollock, but his teacher convinced him that Pollock was an important painter. In July 1950, Namuth asked Pollock if he could photograph him while he was working in his studio. And Pollock was shy, and he only reluctantly agreed because his wife, Lee Krasner, who managed his career, was aware of the importance of media coverage. The pictures helped demystify Pollock's famous drip technique of painting, and they revealed his process as being deliberative rather than just this random splashing of paint. The photographs 
And this is a quote, help transform Pollock from a talented, cranky loner into the first media-driven superstar of American contemporary art, the jeans-clad, chain-smoking poster boy of abstract expressionism. And he was a good-looking guy. So Namath wasn't just satisfied with the black and white still photographs. He wanted to create a color film that managed to focus on Pollock and his painting at the same time, partially because he found more interest in Pollock's image than in his art. So his solution was to have Pollock paint on a large sheet of, gl sheet of glass as Namath filled from underneath the work. Namath couldn't afford professional lighting, so the film was shot outside, and this was in November. So after coming in from the cold weather shoot of the glass painting, Pollock, who'd been very self-conscious and nervous to paint like it was a performance, poured himself a glass of whiskey, ending his two-year run of sobriety. It turned into a fight between the two, between Namath and Pollock, and, they, and Pollock turned over the table of food at the dinner party, which Lee had prepared for them. It's one of those famous episodes like when Pollock peed in the fireplace of a collector at another dinner party. A friend had described that during the shoot. Namus was commanding Pollock to stop and start, directing him, stop, start, changing Pollock's trance of his real painting into a self-conscious performance. In any case, Pollock goes back on the sauce. But Picasso was the opposite. He was a natural performer. And when he was asked in his film if he was tired, he said, no, I could go on all night. So you're listening to the Artist Experience Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park 94.3 FM and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. Today we're talking about Pablo Picasso, the man and the artist. And later in the second half of the show, we'll dig a little deeper into his art. So be sure to stick around for that. Well, I wonder if sometimes we know too much about an artist, and, and this knowledge taints how we see art and looking at the art as an experience. Do we mix up the real person in their lives, or do we keep them separate? Another example of this occurred uh, to me after I read the biography of Wilhelm de Kooning by Mark Stevens and Anna Lynn Swan. The book is titled De Kooning, An American Master from 2004. I remember reading this book and squirming on how he treated women and how his ego destroyed so many people around him. I could not finish this book, and I remember saying, boy, this guy is a real bleep bleep. I gave the book to someone I know, and they said the same thing. So a lot of people kind of got that sense, but Willem de Kooning, de Kooning in my eyes, was not really the artist I thought so of anymore. And he was kind of like a disease process, <laughs> like a visual pathology. And he actually, the end of his life was a pathology. I had trouble looking at Willem de Kooning art ever since. Maybe I did not need to know all that stuff about him. Well, John, that's funny because I saw the women with de Kooning as mutually using each other. He was an alcoholic, kind of accidentally he became an alcoholic, and he was quite a beautiful man. And his wife, Elaine, would never divorce him, ever. Way after they were separated, 
and he had a child with another woman because she enjoyed the public favor of being Mrs. de Kooning. I love that book and would recommend it to anyone. It's the story of how New York got to be the art center of the world, as Paris had been. So I think all those women, Grace Hardigan, Helen Frankenthaler, Elaine de Kooning, Lee Krasner, Joan Mitchell, the women of Ninth Street, who were artists in their own right, had to attach themselves to successful men because that's the only entrance they had into the art world. So I really don't blame them. Yeah, I don't know if they'd admit it, though. That's the thing. I'm not sure those women would admit that. No. Uh, <laughs> No. I, I know, I know that. For, it's pretty for, consistent. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, well, the visual arts, I have, we have to say this, I mean, are not the only art genres where this occurs. I mean, in music, we have the irascible, the irascible and outrageous Beethoven, right? Uh, I, I, uh, if you ever saw a documentary about him or a movie about him, like uh, Immortal Beloved, which came out in 1994, uh, you you might not want to listen to another Beethoven <laughs> symphony. You know, I mean, he was really, you know, out there. What was wrong with that guy? And, you know, there's the mythological Minotaur series by Picasso is a great example. These are beautiful drawings of a commanding, imposing half-man, half-bull on top of a woman. It's about power, control, virility, sexuality. It's also about the vulnerability of the female in weakness and submission. Now, they might appear to be viewed in this light, but in Picasso's era, the women were not addressed as part of that scene as actually being very much important. It was really about the Minotaur. Now we see these images as rape scenes, brutal and violent. In his time, these images are not seen like that at all, and Picasso's personal relationship to women is a visual metaphor to his own life, where women were totally disregarded and separate. Here is where the problem lies. Does one look at the subject of a, the Minotaur and a, woman, and a woman as a rape scene, or an experience as a predator-prey relationship, which is totally about that, or does one look at the visual marks on the page, the composition, the graphic and design elements that makes the whole thing visually whole and beautiful? You know, the lines, the energy in, in it, this, all this goes together. So you have to make a, a decision. As I mentioned, these drawings are really done beautifully, so one needs to decide. How is it going to change your opinion about Picasso, if at all? So that's the big enigma for today's show. Well, we've talked about this before and probably will again because it's such a good and unresolved question, at least in my mind. Other artists with a gift for drawing the, that Picasso definitely had or caricaturing use that gift for political or social commentary Goya, Daumier, Lautrec, and artists for centuries before that. But with Picasso, it's all about him. The submissive women, the rape scenes, the bulls, the distortions. That's the way he creates them to try to wrestle them to the ground, to make them ugly so he can have power over them. That's who he was and is. But look, 
we see this paradox, as you call it, all over. Let's take movies. Movies are an art form that makes a place for the dark desires and violent fantasies. There's no law that says you can't make art out of a murder. A hundred years ago, you could make art out of rape. Not anymore. Well, after church on Sunday, Picasso's father, Don Jose Ruiz, would take his son to a local brothel and introduce him to the working girls, as they were called back then. He would return home from these two events, and his sisters and mother would lord over them with adoration and joy. History tells us Picasso lord his virginity at age 12 or 13. Bravo, Picasso! Uh, I guess I missed that lesson thinking about hockey hockey sticks and baseball gloves at that time. But additionally, Picasso would spend time at the Brussels just hanging out. Like a place to go and like uh. chill. If the wife and I are a fussing brother, that's all right. Cause me and that sweet woman's got a license to fight. Why don't you mind your own business? Mind your own business. Cause if you mind your business, then you won't be minding mine. Oh, the woman on our party line's a nosy thing She picks up her receiver when she knows it's my ring Why don't you mind your own business? Mind your own business Well, if you mind your business, then you won't be minding Welcome back. This is Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake with our 
co-host Tom Sinakis. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience radio program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Today, we're discussing how we look at art with an artist that comes with a lot of dirt in his personal life. When we find out about the real person, how does it affect how we look at the artist's body of work? This is an interesting philosophical question when we experience looking at art. So the viewer or art appreciate is sucked into a psychological engagement that makes us uncomfortable. Is that what artists want or is that what art can be? So Sheila, was Picasso just so honest that he just put it all out there? And he documented his life of abuse, disrespect, violence towards women. And here it is. Picasso thought, basically, here's the way I look at it, you deal with it, right? Uh You're the viewer of my art. You're the viewer of my work. So maybe he was just being honest. And he just said, this is how I feel about women. Take You you deal with it on your own. Yeah. A true narcissist. (laughs) So for the second half of the show, I'd like to include Peter, my husband, in this discussion. So go, Peter. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me on the show, Sheila, Tom. Um, So let, okay, so let me phrase your question this way. In what way is Picasso's art great, if it is great? The greatness, if, if it is great, would lie in that he created something new, something totally new, visually interesting, based in the solid understanding of form and dynamics, you know, et cetera, all those stuff that's hard to talk about. And he made beauty out of ugliness. Well, I think he made ugliness out of beauty. Okay, touche. <laughs> uh, I guess you're right. Yeah, he's, he starts with beauty, which flows so easily out of him and then destroys it and then tunes it in the key of ugly. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so, okay, so let me start over. Tom's question is, how do we process information about bad behavior in an artist? Are we supposed to ignore it? Are we allowed to ignore it? And I'd say without hesitation, you're free to use whatever information you have. You're free to use whatever feelings you have. You, the viewer, get to decide if it's relevant. If Picasso's poor treatment of women is visible to you in his paintings, then it's visible. You don't have to ignore it. You don't like it. And this freedom to pay attention to your own feelings and honor your own reactions is a fundamental principle that you guys have always promoted on this show, Art as Experience. But with an artist recognized as great, that you don't like, you might consider that the art has multiple facets, manifold facets, And so we could hypothesize that the art of Picasso is not just about a certain view of women, and they're not all about women. It's not just a celebration of a certain objectionable lifestyle. His art might also involve, say, discovery of a fundamental process of vision and how meaning is created. So... Knowing his history gives us insight into our own culture. I remember when I was young, 
his persona was held up for admiration. Uh, so it's important to know the truth. Art is supposed to make us better. So why should we study his work? Maybe Picasso brought something new into the world. If so, I want to understand that. I want to understand all the facets. So here's my initial, my initial attempt, an amateur's attempt to see something that he brought into the world. I think Picasso discovered, seemed to discover a way to visualize, utilize, and create fields of force, fields of tension. In that movie we talked about, the film of him painting, he sometimes starts a painting with a set of straight lines that create a dynamic space. Picasso sets up a space that has motion embedded in it, a space that is straining and expanding in directions. He puts in straight lines that create a space that is transforming. Was this new? I mean, if it was, it was a real discovery, something for the 20th century. In, in the movie, the lines that he drew first would eventually be painted over with the scene, but the space and energy remained. In his paintings, let's say one of musicians, he paints a flute. He doesn't put the holes where they are in a real flute, which he certainly could do. The holes are placed by a field that he sees. In a certain sense, artists have been intuiting these fields forever. There's nothing new under the sun. In the Renaissance, they identified the field that moved your eyes around the painting and called it spatial arabesque. But with Picasso, perhaps, these fields became more explicit. And making things explicit is progress. Well, yeah, he was really good in that he could do anything he wanted. Well, I, I think one of the things we have to be very careful about here is Picasso is also looking at other art. And, you know, the Italian uh, futurists who were, you know, in the teens and into the 20s, they were uh, uh, obsessed by the new kinetics mm. of the movement in the human space. Right. You know, the railroad, the airplane, you know, the tram, the bicycle, the, the motor car, the sports car on the Aluminum. racetrack. Right. Okay, so they were injecting movement in dimensional spaces, you know, X, Y, and Z as well. But I think what, what, what Picasso does... I think they weren't making it tense. They were making it, in, in fact, celebratory mm -hmm. that, hey, Italy's got, you know, really new stuff to move around. We're not in this agrarian society. We're not walking around. We're not going from point A to point B in a donkey or a mule. <laughs> no, this is like true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were very excited yeah. that this was coming to them from Germany, whatever. But Picasso is taken, and I think... We use the word tension in this. Uh -huh. He's making it tense. He he wants the uncomfortable um, uncomfortability with all his prowess and you know with technique and all that. He's making it um, really really tense. But and here's where one one thing I find that Picasso fails in fails in dimensional sculpture. Like I feel. 
when you look at his sculptures, his ceramic work, and some of his sculptures, he falls apart. He has to do it on a two-dimensional surface. And I don't think he has the wherewithal like the great sculptors of his day, like Brancusi and stuff like that. That's where he fails. So in other words, he could only give us the tension on a, on a two-dimensional surface. And I think he, he's running with that because he knows how good he is also. And there's where ego's involved. Yeah, ego. Well, I have to say, you know, returning to that movie of Picasso painting, he, it revealed a lot. For one thing, he could improvise like a demon. It's as if he turned over the paintbrush to a demon inside him, and out flows a cornucopia of images, a fountain of creatures. It was fascinating. The word fascinate originally meant to put under a spell. And one of the spells that Picasso casts is picking up our early theme, is transforming a girl into a mask or into a blank, a mystery, a demon herself. His women are filled with a vital force that's due to their being female. This force was not due to being a person, but to being female, filled with an archaic force from the center of existence, but blank, blank, blank herself. He admired this power. He wanted to feast on it. He did not want to kill it or get to know it. It was carnal. Over and over again in the movie, it, you know, if you just joined us here at the Artist Experience Show on WOWDLP, Tacoma Park, we're talking about Picasso, and I'm talking at this moment about a movie from 1956 called The Mystery of Picasso, which you can stream or buy in DVD or Blu-ray, in which Pablo Picasso is shown painting a picture after picture, dozens, dozens of pictures, over and over in the movie. He starts with a pretty naked woman with lovely tresses, and maybe you didn't know that he could draw beautifully, but he could. Then a short, ugly, bald man staring at her, then a taller, elegant, bearded artist also gazing thoughtfully at her, preparing to paint her. Then he transforms the woman again and again. He repaints her. She becomes a goddess, a demon, a statue, a mask, a girl again. A mask, a blank, a terrifying blank mask, which changes kaleidoscopically from angular to moon-faced to skull-faced to that famous lopsided two eyes on one side of the nose sort of girl, and on and on. <laughs> He's a genius, but... Like I said, this aspect of his art should be understood in its totality. You know, genius, originally. In the classical world, Greece and Rome, genius was the attending spirit that was given to you when you were born and stayed with you all your life. It's not necessarily an angel. <laughs> Picasso's genius kept taking him back to the same places, the brothel and the bullfight. It wouldn't let him go. To me, paintings should be created reluctantly, under great stress, and only with the hope that good spirits, not evil ones, will choose us for their instrument. Thank you, Peter, for that. Uh, very poetic as usual. And in this paradox that we're discussing here, but I'm trying to kind of flip the coin. 
Does it exist with women artists, artists depicting men in the same way, in an abusive, violent manner? And uh, I couldn't think of any women that do that. I mean, I was thinking maybe the Gorilla Girls have smashed, you know, maybe some... I could not think of a lot of artists, female artists, that would do that to men. So uh, then I thought of a, a rare example... And this comes out of the Bible story of Judith and Holofernes. And Judith slays Holofernes, who had been, you know, basically she had been like a concubine of his and so on and so forth. And the painting was by Artemisia Gentileschi. And and Gentileschi was a very, very unusual female artist in the time when few existed. And she lived from... 1593 to 1653, and we've talked about her on the show. And here, this artist who painted Judith and Holofernes and one of her more famous works was consistently being raped by the men in her atelier uh, as an artist and as a student. And she actually went to her her own trial to condemn one of the rapists, because in those days, it was the woman that was to blame, right? It was the woman that was to blame the rapist. And, And that was unheard of, but she had the bravery to go in there and point out to the man that raped her. So it's kind of like maybe she was trying to get that out with that great painting, but I can't think of any other examples of women painting men in such a bashing way. Mm. Well, maybe there weren't any other examples. I can't. I mean, it's probably me. I know. Okay, well, here's the truth. Might as well say it. About 20 years ago, one of Pablo Picasso's granddaughters, who, Tom, you just mentioned, Marina Picasso, became the first family member to go public about how much her family had suffered under the artist's narcissism. She said, No one in my family ever managed to escape from the stranglehold of this genius. She wrote this in her memoir, Picasso, My Grandfather. He needed blood to sign each of his paintings, my father's blood, my brother's, my mother's, my grandmother's, and mine. He needed the blood of all those who loved him. When Picasso died, his second wife, Jacqueline Roquet, prevented much of the family from attending the artist's funeral, and the family fell to pieces. Pablito, Picasso's grandson, drank a bottle of bleach, and he died. Pablo, Picasso's son, died of alcoholism, which was born of his depression. Marie-Therese Walter, Picasso's young lover, between his first wife, Olga Kolova, and his second mistress, Dora Mar, later hanged herself. Even Jacqueline Roquet eventually fatally shot herself. Picasso told Francois Gillot, his mistress after Mar, and... Picasso had started an affair with Francois Gillot while he was 61 and she was 21. He said, women are machines for suffering. And he also warned Gillot of his feelings again. He said, for me, there are only two kinds of women, goddesses and doormats. Mm -hmm. Marina saw her grandfather's treatment of women as an even darker phenomenon a vital part of his creative process. Picasso was a womanizer 
who left most of his lovers in emotional shambles. He was not, by most stretches of the imagination, a moral or good person. What we are willing to look past, Picasso's indiscretions, cruelty, and emotional bloodletting, is just as telling of the viewer as the artist. Well, that's intense. Uh, there are many theories on what the heck was wrong with this guy. But <laughs> so, some theories offer something that was not studied in his day, and that was a sex addiction. Now, there were certainly many kinds of addictions in Picasso's days. There was opium addiction, heroin, cocaine. Uh, but sex addiction, addictions were just beginning to kind of begin to get talked about uh, in the early days, that was. Uh, there was a need to have sex, and there was a need that everyone knew that he had to have a lot of sex. That's the other thing. You know, he, he, everybody had to know that that's what he needed. Picasso was a public figure with a public ego. Everyone knew who he was with and when he was with them. I don't think they might have charted this course of emotional cruelties among women, but it was all out there. Then is this small fun fact that I read, and I don't know if it's such a fun fact, but this really incensed me. This was known to his wives and his partners. If Picablo Picasso was entertaining a woman with his girlfriends or wives, he would be carving a phallus, usually painted in gold or covered in gold. So he, they're entertaining, and he's sculpting right there in front of them. And when that person of the female gender left the house, she would get like this door prize, a golden phallus. And it was like a parting gift, so to speak. And, and then it had a meaning. And Picasso said to them, basically, and this is not a quote, I'm just saying, have fun, and I don't want to see you again. So they got the door prize, and he would say this right in front of his partners. So, in other words, how humiliating and abusive is that? So, is, this is a kind of like another kind of screaming, uh, like, insecurity. He, he gives the, pal of the phallus away, but says, I don't want to see you again. So, I mean, wow. I mean, that's the only way I could put it. Right. There's no um, response to that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh! All right, so let's talk about masks. Um, I don't, I, I don't think masks to Picasso represented the history or the continent of Africa. His interest in masks is in how they transform a person and raise them up into a cosmos as an allegorical creature, uncanny, not a full human. Um, for example, there have been in D.C. several productions of Shakespeare using masks. The Tempest at the Shakespeare Theater Company and the Comedy of Errors at the Folger. Um, masks in these productions were not used to convey emotion to the people in the back row. They transformed the actor into another realm. And that transformation is what Picasso is using. He discovered African masks and used them in Demoiselle d'Amignon, but we can see all of the later distorted faces as masks, and he can make the whole body into a mask. Well, masks have power. 
I had an experience years ago when someone came into my house with a T-shirt over his head and attacked me. It was horrible. I got away, but a few days later, I was getting ready for a Halloween party, and I didn't have any conscious idea for a costume. But suddenly, I grabbed a sheet, and I put it over my head and tied it under my chin and cut holes for the eyes. And I looked in the mirror, and I had made myself into the intruder. After that, I was terrified of masks. It's the powerful feeling that you can't see behind the mask and that you are being seen by a demonic force and you are so vulnerable and the mask person is no longer a person but just that force and he's playing with you. Oh, that's, uh, that's an incredible experience, Sheila. And I have to say, yes, uh, the mask, I mean, for thousands of years have served, have served an incredible, uh, you know, many, many reasons to have a mask, but, you know, psychological uh, intensity of a mask, it really, really uh, affects uh, many people, including myself. And I think Picasso, and this is kind of going back into the masks here, it was like a veil. The mask, but, but in Picasso's case, he was wearing many masks. He was like this multiple veiled person. And, and that masked the truth about someone that was very conflicted in his masculinity, his ego, his relationships. And his bashing of people might have been a way of reconciling him. So in some ways, I can actually, I mean, in some ways, it's like a very, very crazy metaphor, but his real face, which everybody knew, in a sense, was a mask. Because it wasn't really... You know, in other words, that's him, but it was so dis- it was t- so dishonest in some way. So, in other words, I see him as really just an incredibly masked person. Wow! As a metaphor, that I mean, in a really kind of sick way, though. Uh-huh. Well, I I did want to talk about this other facet of Picasso, because one of Picasso's most earliest significant friendships was with George Braque. And Brock was also a great young painter. And together they explored another way of dividing and intruding into space. Matisse, too, spent time with these ideas, and especially Juan Gris, who we've talked about before. Both Picasso and Brock disrupted and questioned conventional ideas about art as an imitation of reality. They initially got their ideas from two main sources, Paul Cezanne, and African art. The way Paul Cezanne used fragmented space and ambiguous forms, and then the geometric shapes and figures apparent in African art, particularly African masks, paved the way stylistically for their development of cubism. Together, Picasso and Brock developed the distinct cubist style. Picasso shifted his focus from narrative imagery to pictorial design, while Brock channeled his creativity towards his use of materials and textures and the manipulation of light and space. While their cubist works are visually similar, sometimes you really can't tell the difference between Picasso and Brock. They 
really often strove for different aesthetic effects. Brock desired his works to maintain a sense of balance and harmony, while Picasso strived to disrupt this sense of balance and harmony. They made paintings, drawings, prints, constructions, sculptures, and they were the first artists credited with doing collage. So all you artists out there now who are into collage, that's where the credit comes in. Oh, thank you for that, and, and, mm -hmm. and uh, thank you for the advice. Another wonderful free art lesson from Sheila Blake here at the <laughs> Oz Experience radio program. Yes, uh, and they did it in two different ways, so thank you for that, Sheila. Well, doing this show has been a really interesting experience. At first, I just hated doing it. I just hated sort of being that close up to Picasso, but... And because it brings up questions that I really could not find an answer for. But more, more particularly, because I saw some of Picasso's drawings and they're absolutely wonderful. And unexpectedly, I started to like Picasso's cubism. But what I used to hate, I hate it even more. It's true. But at least I have a better understanding. And that comes with better understanding comes greater appreciation, which is the point of this show. Yes, artists are people like everyone else. And yes, many come with a lot of dirt. Don't we all? Maybe not as much of Picasso. I am reminded that many artists from so many genres like Picasso have lots of stories that came with them despite the great art they made musicians, dancers, poets, actors, and about everyone comes with a history, their art, their persona, and the reality they are as a person, and how do we reconcile those two. On our show today, we try to raise the question on how you view an artist's work when you find out about the kind of person that they really were and how they treated people. A way to separate the two ideas of a person and the art they made Sheeler, I, and Peter introduce Pablo Picasso as a fine example of an artist that has turned heads in the art world and uh, that he made, and also how he treated the people around him. Our introduction is a prelude to the upcoming exhibition at the Phillips Collection um, titled Picasso, Painting the Blue Period, which starts right around now. And we hope you enjoyed the show. So we know what our next show is going to be, Sheila. Just remind them. Yes, we're invited to tour the show at the Phillips and get an insider view of what's behind those Picasso paintings, his earliest paintings. I think with higher tech imaging, imaging that we've seen in the films, it should be really good. Oh, and it will be. Stay tuned to our next exciting program at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3. Experience art and the visual in everything you do, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Mm -hmm.